0: it's tuesday january 2nd 2024 first time i said that feels good a little strange breathe through it from peach fish productions it's the gist i'm mike Pesca. yesterday the state of alabama's highest paid employee faced off against the state of michigan's highest paid employee and in a blow to the idea that money is everything the humble civil servant from michigan won the day Okay, not exactly a civil servant. This wasn't Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmar, who's paid $160,000 a year, versus Alabama Governor Kay Ivey, whose yearly salary is $120,000 a year. I don't know what the verses would be. I don't know what the competition between those two would be. Now, the highest paid Alabaman Alabaman, is Coach Nick Saban, Saban the Alabaman, who's paid $11.5 million to coach the Alabama Crimson Tide. Nick Saban makes in four days what Governor Kay Ivey makes in a year, but can she recruit cornerbacks? Michigan's comparatively destitute Jim Harbaugh, who only makes a little bit over $8 million a year, won the game. Now, he was helped by a bunch of assistant coaches who each make more than a million dollars a year, including Ben Herbert, who is the strength coach, yes, the guy who says "Come on, come on, you could do one more, push it, push it, I got gotcha. you, come on, lock it." That guy, he gets paid a million dollars a year, and you know, strength is important, but of course, it's inner strength that is the most important, just not the most remunerative. Now, in the other semifinal game of college football's national championship, we had the highest-paid employee of the state of Washington, their football coach Kalen DeBoer, beating Texas's Steve Sarkeesian. Now, Steve Sarkeesian is not the highest-paid Texas employee. He is not the highest-paid Texas football coach. Of course, that's going to be the highest-paid Texas employee. But the Longhorn is not the highest-paid by a long shot. And that is because of the presence or actually absence of Texas A&M coach Jimbo Fisher. I should say former Texas NEM coach Jimbo Fisher. Because being a former coach is where the real money is. Jimbo Fisher was let go this year, and his buyout for the privilege of firing Jimbo Fisher, Jimbo got $75 million. His buyout was $75 million. The state's not paying it all. It's not paying it most. Donor dollars went to it. The 12th Man Foundation, $75 million not to coach. This is not the highest buyout package in college football. It's the highest ever paid. But should the University of Georgia fire Kirby Smart, it wouldn't be because they would be on the hook for $92 million. I've seen it calculated as $103 million. It actually could be if the timing is right for Smart or maybe wrong for Georgia. It could be that high. Over $100 million not to coach college football. I don't coach college football for free. That's a terrible mistake on my part. You know, these guys, they get paid for a job well done. And often they get paid slightly more than that for a job done so poorly that someone asks them not to do it at all. The national championship in college football, a game that I don't really follow that much. I like the sport in general, but I only have so much time. And paying a guy $102 million not to be a coach, it chafes, it chafes a little bit. You know, the kids are getting paid now, right? Right. That is uh, one advancement, one bit of fairness. The kids are getting, finally, some of the high-profile athletes are getting some money to play college football. But the next big goal is, of course, them getting paid not to play college football. On the show today, a special programming note, our scheduled conversation today with the president of Harvard talking about second semester course selections and a lot of great goings on in the anthropology department. Uh, They've alerted me it's been unscheduled, descheduled for some reason. We'll look into that. In the spiel, Nikki Haley neglects to mention slavery as the cause of the Civil War. Was Haley being dense, cowardly, racist, or other we will bring you archived material and analysis that leaves you with a more solid answer than any of the screeds you've heard thus far. But first, David Duchovny became a household name as Fox Mulder on the X-Files and was an early streaming star with Showtime's Californication. But did you know he's also a musician? We're listening to him right now. Oh yeah, he's a novelist too. His latest book, The Reservoir, is coming out in paperback soon, so I thought it was a good time to discuss all of these passions. David Duchovny up next. The Civil War we fighting in Since before
1: the flood Yeah, there's a part of us that's always been At home in the blood
0: Ridley lives on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. He sees himself as a modern-day Matthew Brady. Why? What's the subject of his photography? Well, every night he slips his iPhone into a crook in the windowsill and does a little time-lapse of the Central Park reservoir that sprawls out before him. To quote, that's what he'd been trying to see from his window night after night with his art. He'd been trying to probe past the surface of the water, past the superficial illusion of linear time lapsing by, past the droning sameness of days of sunrise and sunset. That's what he'd been trying to say. He knew it was something. Ridley is the main character in the new novella by David Duchovny called The Reservoir. David, welcome to The Gist. Thank you for having me. I also, I didn't know that I didn't know the structure of the book and then after reading The Reservoir there was I thought maybe a chapter called The Scare Owl but that's <laughs> just a bonus short story. So it's kind yes. of a short story collection with one very long short story and one true short story.
1: Yes, it's a it's a it's a it's an egg-shaped collection.
0: Yes. I think you're making publishing history. I don't know anyone <laughs> has ever done that particular combination of works under one cover. Yeah. I feel good about it. <laughs> Trailblazer. So, where do you where do you spend your pandemic? Uh,
1: and it, was, it very much like Ridley. Uh, I was I was on the Upper West Side, uh, facing the park, and I was with my my son, pretty much, uh, who was, was a ju- junior junior to senior in high school, uh, and uh, I did you know the 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 story was really. Um, motivated by the fact that I would take these these uh, time-lapse uh, photos of the beautiful sunrises of the park. And then, um, you know, I just sat down one day, and I thought I was going to write a short story, because I'd never, I'd never written one. And I just thought about, Oh, what about this guy? You know, oh, these, these, these hedge fund guys that think they're artists, because they own art,
0: <laughs> you know? right.
1: right. And, 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 and these, 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 well, having been in hollywood for so long you run into people who who kind of don't respect they have to work with artists but they really don't respect the art, because they can't see what goes into it.
0: Right. They see there's like an angle to it, or that's what makes it popular, but it's it's something about the input is confusing to them. They understand the output, especially if it sells for something. So here's this guy, and to his credit, he knows that there's something possibly profound, or at least interesting to look at, at this time-lapse photography, just doesn't know what it is, and he convinces himself it's art. And you know what? Maybe... It is, but he does, he's not really sure why.
1: Well, to be honest, I mean, I really, when I began it, when I began writing the short story, I, I was kind of, it was going to be a, uh, I thought of it as a satire. I was going to satirize this kind of person. Um, kind of like the, the moment, the origin moment for me in New York was when I saw a guy loading golf bags, you know, on Christopher Street. And I was like, it's over, you know, it's, <laughs>
0: There, there's no way anybody's ever loaded a golf bag on Christopher Street. The New York you know, you knew is dead. Right. That's it. That's the deadhead sticker in the Cadillac. For you. <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Boys uh. of summer. And so, uh, so it really started off as kind of a, a, a satire on people that uh, own art, people that possess art. You know, that kind of that kind of like hedge fund. cliche almost of of the guy who who kind of thinks that art gives him depth you know if he can own it and stuff like that or you know why can't i do that i mean Mm -hmm. look at that that's not like it's not it's not renaissance painting it's just a bunch of you know swaths on a canvas i can do that a monkey could do that so it's kind of that that kind of a, a guy and then you know to his credit and maybe to mine you know as i as i wrote it as, as it attained a certain kind of depth of character, I, I started to not want to satirize him, but to empathize a little more. Still, he's 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 a limited guy, but I, my heart kind of went out to him at some point and the story changed.
0: Yeah, I even sensed that as the story moved on. That doesn't surprise me. Early on, he seemed more shallow. And I don't know if he... Um, I don't know if he acquired depth but i began to feel a little more sympathetic or empathetic with him i mean just basically the whole very universal relatable feeling of going kind of nuts and trying to find some meaning with what was going on in the pandemic that is very relatable
1: yeah and you know literally uh, this is a guy who Who is taking photographs of the surface of something he's taking you know that's what photographs do they can only take the surface so um he he comes to realize you know much like much like many protagonists you know at some point he comes to realize that what he's been looking at he's been looking at the surface of something that has depth and it's almost what
0: kills him well maybe so were you with ridley as a character
1: yeah, I, I would say that's a fair assessment that, you know, I, I, you know and satire by its nature is, you know, you kind of want to limit your empathy when you're when you're satirizing. So you're kind of going off surfaces and you're going off gestures. So, yeah, I think I think that's true.
0: So you say you've never written a short story before, but you've written several novels. Yeah, four that's... novels and one graphic novel. So you just start in with the long ones. You don't <laughs> cut your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I think my process has been um I mean for for the first 3 novels uh definitely and and the graphic novel these were ideas that came to me as either movies or long form television shows so they were longer they just they were longer stories I I in a utilitarian way I don't think I I was kind of using my mind to go after short story type things i was i was like i was looking for the longer story because i wanted to write a movie make a movie or or find a subject matter that was going to engender you know years of
0: material right probably i don't know this supposition on my part but acting on TV or movies, and I know you weren't writing the novels necessarily at the same time you were concentrating on the TV and movies, but even a movie, you know, a 120 page script, that's that's not a novel, that's a novella and it could have a lot of, it, it could span as much time and be ambitious especially if it's, you know, there will be blood or something like that. But I could see why if most of your creative life is into is in something like episodic TV, you'd be drawn to the allure of the longer form and the greater depth of the novel was that going on um uh, i think that's
1: fair i think the greater attraction was just my love of language and the fact that if you have a love of language you should not be writing screenplays um in, in fact it gets in the way you know screenplays are, are dialogue and description and really good description or non-cliche description is impossible to shoot so you're really going to want to write cliches you're going to write exactly what you're going to see you want to write physical stuff you want to write shootable stuff you want to write superficial stuff and then the dialogue well the dialogue is the dialogue
0: yeah, like uh, I underline this to exemplify your point. Though he was a rational man, he half hoped his lens might catch that, like historically revisionist ectoplasm in the spooky mist of the reservoir. Now, how the fuck do you shoot that? <laughs>
1: exactly. I mean, I always, I always go back to like you know scripts I read when I was just starting out, and they'd say things like, <clears throat>
0: you know, she has, she has an old soul's eyes. You know, she, it's like yeah. Really? How, how do you play that? Like, is that a special kind of squinting? <laughs> are they
1: are they weeping with, with with kind of liquid coming out of them? I'm not sure. You know, so right. there are all these kind of cheats that are you know maybe maybe those are uh, notes to the actor. You know, you, there's many things happening in a script. The actors have to read it. Directors, everybody has to read it for their own thing. Um, but in a when you when you take uh, say a movie idea like I did with. Bucky fucking Dent, and then I wrote it as a novel, and then I made it as a movie. Um, I got to, the process of that was, aside from adding stuff, because I had room to stretch out in the novel, um, the process was really like, uh, almost like acting out the scenes, because where, in, in a script where I just have dialogue, in the book I could I could write about what the people were feeling at the time they were saying that thing, or something that was going on at the time that they were saying that thing. And it becomes like, I found when I went to direct it, it became very helpful for the actors to read the book, because it was like, oh, this is like, almost like, uh, you know, you did my work for me here, mm-hmm. you research for me. So there's a, there's a freedom, you know, in writing a novel and writing fiction, uh linguistically or verbally that you just don't have you just don't have uh, you know and it shouldn't be because it's a movie it's
0: not it's not about the words it's it's about the images you must have been in movies that were based on novels right um i I don't think i've ever been asked that question uh i must have oh the goats
1: i'm thinking goats uh was a novel uh by poirier um
0: did you go back and read it beforehand beforehand
1: i did yeah. i haven't read it i haven't read it since yeah yeah i found it helpful
0: because i i would imagine some i don't know different actors different processes but some wouldn't right especially if they found an into their character they wouldn't want to know how yeah, else. They, they, they
1: might not want it they might they might feel like that's information they don't want it's like uh you know if you're doing a remake or something you may or may not want to see what the performer did before you right if you 10th Batman, you may not want to see the other
0: nine Batmans. I don't know. <laughs> Batman is the plural, David. <laughs> Batsmen, I believe. Is. <laughs> so um, what about, did any of the actors in Bucky fucking Dent, uh, they all went back and read it. And so when they, whatever they brought to their roles, did you see something that was there and was true, but you had never intended it, even as the author of uh, the text and the text?
1: Always. that's you, you, you better well hope so. That's the magic of making a movie, is you're collaborating, and you're asking people to come in and, and use their skills in ways that you don't use yours. If you're a bad director, you're going to try to shoehorn them into your vision, and I guess that's called an auteur. Yeah. I guess I'm not that. <laughs> was, um, there was a couple of actual scenes, not scenes, but there were a couple lines from the book uh, that uh, um, the actors brought to my attention, and they were like, uh, "You should really keep this in," and I was like, "Okay." And I put it in, and it, it works. You know, so it's nice to have fresh eyes. It's nice to have a different angle. Um, it's all a collaboration. So yes,
0: I'm always surprised, and if I'm not surprised, that's that's probably a problem. So a couple questions about uh, source material or inspiration. I'm sure some of this will just be me reading into it too much. So one is I know you're I know you're in bands and you're a musician. And when I watch Californication, there's always references here and there to music I knew and a lot of Warren Zevon references. Do you yeah. were you thinking of the song Splendid Isolation, where he talked about I want to live on the upper west side of Manhattan and never come down to the street? <laughs>
1: no. <laughs> I I've I've heard that song. I've never listened to a lyric like that. I'll have to go listen to it when we're done. Um Zevon. My Zevon fandom is interesting because uh, I, I, I took Californication and I think we may have already shot the pilot. Um, but I, I was thinking about, you know, OK, I'm going to live in this world for a while. And Tom Capanos, the creator of the show, is a huge music guy, loves music, is a good guitar player. Um, has different tastes from me, but we overlap in our Venn diagram a little bit and um i don't know for some reason back and forth from work maybe shooting the pilot i just got into zevon and i had never really been into him before i mean i knew werewolves of london or whatever yeah but uh you know desperado's under the eaves and just the fact that he was he was really like this noir poet of la you know it was perfect for californication and and gabinos didn't know zevon either so we both kind of fell for Zevon as we were shooting the pilot. And then I think we, you know, we used four or five of his songs over over the years.
0: Yeah, that's right. He's, uh, he's noir, he's LA, he's like uh, a a West Coast Lou Reed. I know some people compare him to Springsteen. I think he's less magisterial, but it really, if I thought it fit Californication very well. There's a lot of Led Zeppelin in this. He wakes up and he talks about, and he thinks about 15 seconds of cashmere, right? Yeah. Well, whatever they
1: give you on your, on your alarm.
0: (laughs) But then, uh, you know, it's in Central Park. There are scenes in the ramble. I don't know. Did I miss it? Is there a reference to ramble on or is it just kind of overlaying it?
1: No, no. But I I do have a lyric in one of my songs called 3000, where I talk about rambling through the strawberry fields. So I, I'm, it's on my mind, rambling. But ramble on, yeah. That's a miss. I miss that one. But here's the deal: is I had, I had had a really bitching quote from Kashmir to lead the story, and uh, you know, it, it came back that it was going to cost me like fifteen thousand dollars to to just quote Kashmir. I wasn't even like adding a, you know, the music. You can't quote a lyric. Not more than two lines. Oh my gosh. You can get two lines which is why in the body of the novella there's two lines. So you can quote two lines. That's it. After that it's up to the I don't even think it's going to come to the attention of Zeppelin, but it's whoever owns their publishing and they're they're not they don't give a fuck. They just, you know, they're not going to say, "Oh, we like the copy. Let's give it to him for 200." It's like, <laughs> "Oh, you can And I didn't know when I first started writing novels and you know, I just like any any other novelist I love a great epigram and I love rock and roll and I love like mysterious kind of openings to chapters and shit like that and I found out early that it's the authors that have to pay like your editor your publishing house won't pay for that for those quotes so I was like I I'm not going to make $15,000 off this whole novella I'm not going to to pay for that so what I did was I found that quote by Robert Plant about cashmere yeah
0: cashmere Oh, that's fascinating. Now, do you think if you quoted two speci- or three specific lines from Ramblin', you'd have to kick that money, or they'd have to kick that money back to J.R.R. Tolkien because it has all those Lord of the Rings lyrics in it? I wonder how that works.
1: Well, also, I mean, you got to go. You got to go back to Jimmy Page and you know his whole history of,
0: uh, let's call it, homage. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, right? Does he have to pay every American bluesman? <laughs> As an artist, you want artists to get paid, I'm sure. But what do you think of that, by the way? I mean, it seems kind of antithetical to the pastiche nature of creating art. But on the other hand, you don't want anyone to get ripped off.
1: It's a tough one. I I do want artists to get paid, but art is a collective, you know, or or culture is a collective and, and nobody owns it um nobody can own it it's a living breathing thing it's and it's universal it's it's not american it's the, the the influences on rock and roll come from everywhere everywhere i mean if you like you could take the main tributaries or like english hymns and rhythm and blues american rhythm and blues but they're both strong you know you can't have rock and roll without both of those things to say you know rock and roll is this or rock and roll is that it's not it's it's folk music, and yeah. how can you pay the folk? Who want to, but
0: yeah, I often think of that. That if we had today's relatively strong regime of copyright enforcement, we probably wouldn't have the great music to try try to win copyright lawsuits over uh, in the future. You, you might I mean? not,
1: and even even the famous cases where people are, you know, George Harrison or or, or Zeppelin is is accused, you know, of outright like. Plagiarism. That's a tough one. It's a tough one because you're asking, you know, you're going to get like musicologists having different opinions from just the man in the street who you play the songs for. And he goes, yeah, it's the same song. And the musicologist says, no, it's different because of of this or that or the other thing.
0: Right, I followed the um, I followed the the Marvin Gaye estate trial, and they were trying to enforce, and in fact, they even won it with uh, blurred lines and a chord progression. Which which seems, I mean, you know, you're a musician to copyright a chord progression seems insane to me. And then you especially uh yeah. you know a, a rock and roll or
1: or even a blues chord progression, they're 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 all the same. You know, um, I, I'm all for uh, Marvin Gay getting, w- um, getting what he can, his uh, estate getting what it can. I'm all for you know Robin Thicke having to pay money. But I, I, to be honest, I didn't, I didn't really. It didn't sound the same to me. I, I've had other experiences where I, I hear a song come on the radio, and I'm like, holy shit, that's. Yeah. I've had stronger reactions than to Blurred
0: Lines. I was surprised that that went as far as it did. And that is David Duchovny talking about his book, The Reservoir, as well as Led Zeppelin, The Meaning of Art, and of course, Hedge Fund Bros. And for Pesca Plus subscribers, you could tell by the dip out rather than the thank you. If you desire a thank you, you could go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. And for just a little more, you know what? Less than a little more, I'll give you 11% off if you use the promo code Belgium for one day. My promo code expires sometime tomorrow. They won't tell me when. But you can get ad-free content, Pesca Plus content, and the end of this conversation. And now the spiel. A few days after Christmas at a New Hampshire campaign event, Nikki Haley was asked about the causes of the Civil War. She answered as if she was asked about the causes of Iran's anti-hijab protests.
2: I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do.
0: What she didn't say was slavery which, of course, was the condition that informed every tension that led to the South Cessation, led by South Carolina. The headlines were swift. Haley's Civil War distortions shatter moderate campaign image. That from MSNBC, New York Times, when Haley dodged the slavery question, she put her coalition at risk. Okay, but what is really going on? The loudest interpretation, the one least kind to Haley, was reflected in the Daily Beast headline, Nikki Haley's Slavery gaff shows how scared she is of MAGA Republicans. The thinking there is Haley distorted history because she doesn't want to make racist Republicans uncomfortable. And you know what? That could be. But there's actually, I think, a little more going on here. So if it really were the case that Haley was just a racist, or really didn't think that slavery was a great evil at the heart of the Civil War, she wouldn't have said this in her inauguration speech in 2011, literally among the very first words out of her mouth as governor.
2: Of course, when talking about our past, it would be wrong to mention our greatness during the revolutionary period without noting the ugliness of much that followed. The horrors of slavery and discrimination need not be retold here. They too remain a a fabric of our history and a fabric of our lives.
0: The reaction to that was not finally it needed to be said, but rather she got it wrong. And when you think about it, she did. Writing in the state newspaper a few days after the inauguration speech, history professor Melissa Walker faulted Haley's timeline. The part about our greatness during the revolution, without noting the ugliness of much that followed, the horrors of slavery, Walker wrote, Really? Slavery came after the revolution? Even though African-born slaves were the majority in South Carolina by the 1740s, Governor Haley erroneously suggests that slavery arrived in South Carolina or at least became a horror only after the triumphant founding period. I couldn't find much evidence of Haley talking forthrightly about the legacy of slavery while she was governor. And as governor of an overwhelmingly white Southern state from 2011 to 2017, she had little to gain from doing so. She probably thinks she still has little to gain from being blunt in her effort to court Republican voters of 2024. Now it is true. And Haley and her staff emphasize this point, that she was the governor who spearheaded the initiative to remove the Confederate flag from the state capitol. But listen to how she describes her perspective on that experience as she spoke to the Iowa Faith and Freedom Coalition back in September.
2: The flag is a very sensitive issue in South Carolina. Half the people see the flag as heritage and ancestry. The other half see it as slavery and hate. My job wasn't to judge either side. My job was to get them to see the best
0: of themselves and go forward. She's trying to be practical, to move forward, that's her brand, and to meet voters where they are, especially if voters are Republicans who do not wish to be blamed for the legacy of slavery. You can see the Confederate flag as a symbol of heritage, and Nikki Haley won't judge you. She's safe for that kind of voter. She also says she won't judge someone who's pro-choice. This is a tactic overall that has worked for her in the past, so she used it just a few days ago. The readers of the Daily Beast or the viewers of MSNBC might be outraged, but they're not likely Nikki Haley supporters anyway. The voter she's after, she figures, will appreciate her stance. But what is her stance exactly? There was someone at the heart of the critique of a few of her rivals, take Chris Christie.
1: She didn't say what she said last night and today about this because she's dumb. She's not, she's smart, and she knows better. The reason she did it is just as bad, if not worse.
0: And she got everybody concerned about her candidacy. She did it because she's unwilling to offend anyone by telling the truth. Disagree, she was gleefully eager to offend Vivek Ramaswamy. Chris Christie's brand is vote for me, I'll be offensive. Haley wants her calling card to be let's focus on solutions. But back to the idea that Haley was being slippery. She didn't say slavery, but what did she say? What was she really saying? In New Hampshire, she said the causes of the Civil War was how government was going to run, the freedoms, and what people could and couldn't do. The next day on Good Morning, New Hampshire with Jack Heath, she gave a slightly expanded answer. Uh, Any regrets for not saying that the South not wanting to abolish
1: slavery was an an underlying cause?
2: Well, two things on this, Jack. I mean, of course the Civil War was about slavery. We know that. That's, That's the easy part of it. What I was saying was, what does it mean to us today? What it means to us today is about freedom. That's what that was all about. It was about individual freedom. It was about economic freedom. It was about individual rights. Our goal is to make sure, no, we never go back to the stain of slavery. But what's the lesson in all of that? that we need to make sure that every person has freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to do and be anything they want to be without anyone or government getting in the way. That was the goal of what that was at. Yes, I know it was about slavery. I'm from the South. Of course you know
0: it's about slavery. Individual freedom, economic freedom, individual rights. I heard that as siding with the Confederates. She's fleshing out the governance versus freedom answer to say that the secessionists were standing up for their individual liberty to do what they wanted to do, own slaves. If the Civil War was about how, quote, government was going to run versus freedom, the North, the Union, was the government, and they were disallowing the claim of states' rights or individual rights, which would cleave the nation. But maybe I was hearing this all wrong. I listened to a 2010 interview she did with the Palmetto Patriots, a now defunct group, uh, Confederate flag supporters, perhaps just neo-Confederates. Some members were affiliated with white nationalists. And in that interview, Haley described the Civil War this way.
2: You know, at the end of the day, what I think we need to remember is um, that, you know, everyone is supposed to have their rights. Everyone's supposed to be Free, everyone's supposed to have the same um, freedoms as anyone else. So, you know, I think it was tradition versus change is the way I see it. Tradition versus change on what? On individual rights and liberty of people.
0: There seems to me the freedom side of the equation is the anti slavery side. Was it always? Is that what she meant in her town hall in New Hampshire answer? It's all a bit confusing. And I think Haley wants to leave audiences with the impression that she agrees with them even if members of one audience might disagree with each other. Sidney Blumenthal, writing in The Guardian, heard Haley's answer as, quote, lost cause light, adding her rationale was a muffled echo of that of Confederate leaders justifying secession. So here, freedom is referring to the freedom of Confederates, the Confederacy. The Wall Street Journal heard her reference to freedom as anti-slavery. They wrote... She did not use the word slavery, but hinted at it, saying that everyone is supposed to be free. I'm not sure exactly what impression Nikki Haley wanted to leave, but I know the impression is so light you have to hold it up to the sun in order to see it. To be blunt, of course she should have said slavery. To be, probably overly generous, If she could talk to white Republicans who don't want to be called racist and however indirectly frame the opposition to slavery as coming from the same freedom-loving impulses that gets them to oppose lockdowns or join the Tea Party, that may be an impressive political feat. But of course, none of this was a political feat. It was a gaffe. But I don't think a terribly important one. I don't think she was going to win in any case, but she's at 25% in an average of polls. Let's see if she rises or falls. I definitely don't think it shattered her image as a moderate, especially among immoderates. It probably cemented her reputation as a regular old politician who's too chameleon-like, a bit too much of a people-pleaser. Then again, when your main rival is a venom-spewing dictator for a day, being a normal politician is a fairly bold contrast. And that's it for today's show. Corey War produces the gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the director of special projects for Peachfish Productions. It's also our anniversary. Happy anniversary. We got married at 3.45 p.m. on this day three years ago. Do you know why? The Just is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the Gist, and thanks for listening.